Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Thursday morning, the 31st of January. Good morning. This is Michael Reid with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. The idea that Theresa May is running down the Brexit clock took a twist this morning when Jeremy Hunt, the Foreign Secretary, told the BBC that the UK could look for more time and delay an exit from the EU. Mrs May's credibility plummeted this week. The lady is not for turning, said Margaret Thatcher, but Theresa May turns and U-turns, flips flops and betrays. The Remainer who vows to leave promised to do so as a united kingdom, then betrayed the DUP by agreeing to the Irish backstop, only to turn that on its head and betray the rest of Europe, saying a deal can only be done now by finding alternative arrangements to the backstop she committed to. In fact, she recommended that her party should vote against a deal that she herself had organised. Let's talk about where we're at this morning with the DUP MLA for South Down, Jim Wells. You're welcome, as always, to the programme. Uh, what do you make of the Prime Minister? Well, Michael, I have to say to you, I've heard some interesting introductions in my time to interviews, but I have to say that was really takes the biscuit. I wouldn't necessarily agree with everything you said there. We, we are in difficult, uncharted waters, I accept that, and there will be problems ahead. But I think the, the Prime Minister is now in the right place. Now, admittedly, she came by a very uh, circuitous route, but she's going back to Europe to say that the backstop is not acceptable, and it isn't. And, uh, she's but she going negotiated back to, the backstop. And she made a fundamental mistake, Michael. A fundamental mistake. Um, she didn't consult uh, large proportions of her own party and the DUP before she entered into that agreement. She must have realised that when she signed it that it was never going to happen. And she's had to sort of turn tail and go back and say, look, folks, on this crucial issue, I got it wrong. I have had the largest uh, defeat inflicted upon me in the history of the United mm. Kingdom Parliament. And we need to renegotiate. So she negotiated in bad faith? She, she got it wrong, Michael. She got it completely wrong. But I thought you said she must have known that it would never wash. Well, I think she felt that she could use her powers of persuasion and how wrong she was because 
200, she lost by 230 votes. I mean, that's a colossal defeat, the largest ever recorded in UK history. And quite clearly, once people had a chance to look at the backstop and examine its implications, they realised this was a non-starter. And she's got a very clear message, and she's accepted she got it wrong, and she's going back to convince Europe there has to be a better way forward. Is she stupid then? I think she she chanced her arm. I think we'd use. I don't know if that phrase translates uh, down south, but certainly she tried uh, to get away with it. Uh, she failed miserably, and the result is that she's going to have to go back and say to Juncker and uh, mm. all Barnier that, mm. folks, this won't wash with my government. They are, are with the Parliament, and there has to be a better way, and there are better ways, but, and but they need to be negotiated. Did, did, she, did she not know that this would be the result when she went home with this deal that she had negotiated and agreed to with Barnier, Juncker and Varadkar? Did she lie to them, or did she make liars of them? No, no I think Michael, that's going a bit far. Is well, it? Because our, our Prime Minister told the people of this country that the deal he had agreed uh, and with the rest of Europe, with Mrs May, was bulletproof. Well, it, was, it might be bulletproof in the Irish Republic, but it certainly wasn't in the UK Parliament. I think she thought she could use her powers of persuasion to, to convince enough of her backbenchers to support it, and of course the Labour Party. Um in that she, she got it totally wrong. And, and Michael, I hate to tell you this, but politicians sometimes make very bad mistakes and they have to live with the consequences. On this occasion, she did. Now, the DUP, way back on the 5th of December 2017, made it very clear that we would never sign up to a backstop. I think the shock has been the huge number of Conservative MPs, 109, who've listened to the DUP and said, hold on, you're right here. You're absolutely right. We can't back this. And I think well done to Nigel Dodds and his team who have worked so assiduously behind the scenes to convince uh, Conservative MPs that the backstop is utterly unacceptable. So what, utterly. Is, so, so, so what does that mean? Does that mean that the United Kingdom is going to crash out of the European Union without a deal? There are many, many other options, Michael, and I predict that you and I will spend many hours on your programme over the next few weeks discussing them as they begin to emerge. I, I, I still, nobody wants a, to crash out. Nobody wants a hard border or a hard Brexit. Uh, I've, I've been in politics for 43 years and I have yet to meet anybody anywhere who's, who's lusting after a, a hard border, hard Brexit situation. Right. There are options and they have to be negotiated and negotiated quickly. What do you mean options? Uh, options that well, you, you'll put to people who aren't listening? Well, they, they're going to have to listen, Mike. Well, no, the they British probably. Prime Minister has said that the betrayal of the Brexit deal has only reinforced the need for a backstop. He, he told Mrs May that on the telephone last night. Sorry, you mean the Irish Prime Minister? Yes. You said the British Prime Minister, I don't think... Oh, I beg your pardon. (laughs) The Irish Prime Minister. Yes, and and they would say that, wouldn't they? And where people are are establishing their negotiating positions as we lead up to some terribly complex... No, the negotiations are over. Uh, Apologies. Uh, Leo Vradker said that it was negotiated, uh, and now she's betraying that negotiation. And that reinforces the need for a backstop. Uh, The... Uh, President of the European Commission, Jean-Claude Juncker, said that the withdrawal agreement was up for ratification, not renegotiation. Yes. yes. And, Michael, the vote to dump 
the backstop was taken at 8.46. Seven minutes later, uh, all of those spokesmen came out one by one to say that the backstop has to remain. That's how much consideration they give to the Westminster debate. These are people establishing their opening gambits, their opening positions for what will be a very complex set of negotiations. Do you mean the debate, it, do you, do you mean the, the debate that took place uh, the other night? Or, or you know, the, at Westminster. What about the two and a half years of debate, negotiation and compromise that has led up to this? Yes. Uh, but and I, agreement. I think, I think the belligerent attitude of the EU was such that it, to come out after six or seven minutes and say it ain't going to happen, I think is, is an exhibition, exhibition of bad faith. Michael, there are options. There are other options to this. People have established a position. Well, Michelle, Michelle Barnier, uh, the chief negotiator for the European uh, Commission uh, or European Union, has said, no, there aren't, uh, that the agreement will not be renegotiated. Yes. Austria... And, and he would. Austria Austria has said no, France has said no, Germany has said no, the European Commission has said no, Ireland has said no. Uh, Who who, who is Britain talking to? Well, Britain will be talking to the Barnier and the other negotiating team. No. They are going back to negotiate. Of course they are. But the response is no. Yes, yes, Michael, and that's like, as a famous phrase would go. They would say that, wouldn't they? But remember this: the EU needs Britain as much as Britain needs the EU. There is a ninety billion euro trade deficit between Europe and United Kingdom. They sell far more goods to us than we sell to them. One in seven German cars that are sold go to the UK market. The vast bulk of Spanish lettuce, tomatoes and soft fruit goes to the British market. They, there's 40,000 jobs in Germany resting on a, a successful trade deal. Do you think the unions and the politicians in Europe are going to stand by and watch huge unemployment as a result of a hard Brexit? Well, of course they won't. Do you think 27 countries need one country more than that country needs uh, the 27 countries. As, as it happens on the trade basis, they do. And remember, 15% of the trade of the Irish Republic is dependent upon the British market as well. No one is going to uh, chop off their nose despite their face here. There will have to be agreement, or perhaps there will have to be a delay. There may well have to be more time obtained to get an agreement. But I, my personal view is that I don't think there's any prospect of crashing out uh, as it's called, on the 29th of March without something happening to avoid that uh, cliff-head situation. I don't think it's going to happen. And, you know, there there's always has to be compromise. We've got two months to sort this out, and I believe people are establishing their positions to go in and negotiate. And, I mean, one option is that we have a sunset clause, that, yes, you have your, your backstop, but it uh, disappears, it vanishes mm-hmm. in December 2021. What's wrong with that? That's a, a realistic proposal. That's the sort of thing that can be considered. All oh, right. What do you think of uh, what Leo Vradker said uh, in Davos last week, uh, that uh, you're talking a- about a situation uh, which could lead uh, to the return of a hard border, and that means customs posts, people in uniforms, police and military and targets, uh, which has always been the case uh, in uh, the history of this island. Well, first of all, even in a hard Brexit situation, which none of us want, that won't happen. Because right. if there's going to be customs checks, they will be well behind the border. I mean, this is proposal, for instance, my own. And will they not be targets? 
well, if the target if the target said this is Republicans, but you know they, we can't we can't make policy on the basis of some people might react very badly to it. But the proposal is, for instance, that Warren Point Police Station, the old site in the town, will be used to clear some of those goods and services which have not been able to be processed under trusted trader status mm. that haven't been processed before they get to the border. But as far as you and I travelling up and down the border, uh, they, 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 from one side to the other, we don't notice any change. We just drive up and down as normal. Well, it's that, only those goods that haven't been cleared in advance that will have to be checked. Well, that is not the case, uh, according to others. Uh, and indeed, uh, the top civil servant in uh, the Ministry of Defence has, in a letter, according to Sky News, said that the highest priority for him and his department is to prepare for a no-deal scenario. And at present, they're identifying and preparing around 3,000 soldiers uh, who are set to comprise the majority of 3,500 military personnel that will be available for no-deal duties, and they're engaging in no-deal war games. Is that defence in military defence in the Republic or United Kingdom? In the United Kingdom. Well, you know, no one has a clue what these troops are going to do. Uh, you know, the reality is, how on earth would you need troops to to protect a border if no one notices any change on the Northern Ireland side? And if all the clearance of goods was done many miles before you get to the border? I mean, this doesn't make sense. This is Project Fear and Overdrive. The, the, the reality is that there is an attempt to scare the people of the United Kingdom into some form of rash deal. But the reality is, it can't go through without the DUP. The DUP will not be voting for the backstop. Read mm. my lips. They will not be voting for it. Therefore, it can't go through. So, I mean, but, Michael, there are many, many other options out there that need to be discussed. And we don't like the attitude of the Irish and the other EU members who are completely rejecting sensible compromises that get us out of this problem. What odds would you give on a second referendum and people voting to remain in Europe? Well, in the various options that were debated in Westminster, a second referendum failed miserably to get support. Secondly, of course, it's impossible to have a second referendum before March the 29th. That's just physically not possible. Um, I am totally opposed to it, but I'd have to say it, it, the odds on it happening have lengthened considerably over this last month. I mean, there were those who thought it was a realistic runner, mm. say, four weeks ago. I, I can't see it happening. But the other thing is, Michael, what happens if that referendum's held mm. and there's a slight majority to stay? Then there'd be massive uproar for a third referendum. Or what happens if a referendum confirms the original result? and that we get two referendums saying we're going to leave, uh, then that really uh, makes the situation very, very clear and we leave. But I don't think we want to leave in those circumstances. I think we want to leave as a result of a negotiated agreement, a sensible option, which takes into consideration the concerns of the Irish Republic, but also uh, stops the the, the, the backstop, which is a waiting room for constitutional change. Yeah, but sure. Uh, we can't trust the British. Uh, I mean, Leo Radker said as much in his phone call to Mrs May last night. Uh, we've been betrayed. Uh, she committed to a backstop. Uh, and now she's said that it'll have to be done without the backstop. It, it is a complete you, betrayal. It's a complete U-turn. It's a complete flip-flop. There was a lie somewhere. Uh, maybe the Taoiseach was lied to, or maybe the Taoiseach was lying when he told the Irish people that it was bulletproof. Uh, but something was certainly not true. 
as you know, I know Lady Francia quite well because he was Minister of Health at the mm. same time as himself. I don't believe there's any any form to criticize by Leo Faradka or by Theresa May. I believe that Theresa May genuinely believed she could sell this deal and got it totally wrong. And we're human beings, we're fallible. Even mm. Mike Reed's fallible. That you, we make mistakes in life. And therefore, uh, when we do, we have to face up to it. Now, I have to say we have not been impressed by Theresa May's performance at all in this whole negotiating process. But we are where we are. And, Michael, this would all seem very bleak if there weren't sensible, realistic alternatives to the situation that we're in. Mm, you know, that's the problem. That, everybody else says there aren't. Yes, but they would say that, Michael. And, and ev- everybody else listens to you and says, well, what are they? And nobody is able to answer right. the question. Well, can I, give, can I give you, first of all, the sunset clause that means that the backstop uh, expires in December 2021. That's not a backstop. We have a temporary backstop. That's not a backstop, but the backstop is an insurance unless or until a solution is found. Uh, So it it cannot be finite. Well, then that would be unacceptable, but at least... But that's what a backstop is, so what you're saying is not a backstop. So that's an alternative to a backstop. If there is to be a backstop... Well, that's not a, a runner. That's when a backstop becomes a, th- a sword of Damocles hanging over our necks. If you're going to negotiate a good trade agreement, then you don't worry about the backstop expiring in December 2021. Okay. Second option. Second option. Well, we still haven't heard the first one. No, the, sec- well, the first option is a, a, a backstop that expires in 2021. That's not a backstop. Well, second option. Second option is that you have a trade deal within the British Isles, that we have a, a, custom, a, a single market within the British Isles where goods and services can move freely between the United Kingdom and the Irish Republic. Now, that immediately uh, negates the need for a hard border because there will be no problem with goods and services crossing. Okay. The border then and does it require that the Republic leaves the European Union? No, no. The Republic continues the Republic continues to trade normally with the European Union. You effectively move the border then from across the Irish Sea to between Dover and between Dover and Calais. Mm. And that's, that immediately removes the difficulty of there being a, a, a hard but border. It, it changes the membership rules of the European Union it does. for the it Republic does, of Ireland. It does, but it means mm. the Republic yeah. of Ireland. Well, you see, both worlds. the European Union is a union. So that's well, so, so, so that's not an option. That's not a realistic option. Well, no, so it, it, so we're, we're, sti- we're, st- we're still at the stage of exploring. And those who are very skilled and knowledgeable and expert at doing that spent two and a half years trying to find solutions without any success. Yes, but that option actually wasn't considered during those negotiations. Now, I do, as you say, it would require a change of direction by the European Union, but it means that the Irish Republic has the best of both worlds because they trade freely with all of the United Kingdom who are outside the European Union and with the EU. So the border moves to effectively to the English Channel. Now, well, I'm not saying that this is likely to happen, but I think at least it should be considered as the option. Third option is that we move directly to a Canada trade deal 
a Canada Plus trade deal, which means that we don't have to worry about a backstop because Britain has a free trade agreement with the, with the 27 member states. Now, in other words, we go the other way around. We go for a trade mm-hmm. deal, which means you don't need to have a backstop. Now, the problem is, Michael, some of these may not be realistic. I accept that. But at least they should be being discussed at this stage rather than people sitting in their various corners and saying it's a backstop or nothing. Not an inch, no surrender, no backstop, no deal. That simply can't be, isn't tenable because that leads to, I think, a very undesirable situation. Okay, but very desirable for 27 countries in the European Union. We have to leave it there. Thanks, as always, for joining us this morning. Jim Wells, thank you, thank you indeed. Jim Wells, DUP, MLA for South Down. Michael Reed on LMFM. The cost of uh, the National Children's Hospital is coming under scrutiny again uh, this morning. The Public Accounts Committee is hearing uh, from uh, the board of uh, the hospital, the HSE, and officials uh, from uh, the Department of Health. It's uh, the second time this week that an Oireachtas committee has looked at the soaring cost and uh, indeed the Minister for Health has uh, outlined uh, how He's been very concerned uh, and, in fact, that that would be an understatement. The minister, minister seems angry at how this cost has soared by almost a billion euro and told this uh, to another committee earlier in the week, uh, the Health Committee. Louise O'Reilly is Sinn Féin's spokesperson on health and uh, a member of uh, that committee and she joins us now. And a very good morning to you and thanks uh, for joining us as always. Uh, the minister morning, said that when he came aware of how the cost had increased, he had three options. He, he could pause it, uh, he could cancel it or he could retender it, uh, uh, but he, he decided to go ahead with it uh, and uh, he believes that that was the right decision. Do you think he was correct? Well, I'd like to see the report that he based that decision on. Um, and despite a commitment given by Tom Costello, the head of the National Pediatric Hospital Development Board and the Minister, I still haven't got that report, Michael. And um, what I would have liked to hear from the Minister, um, because I've heard other ministers and, and senior people uh, from Fine Gael come out and say, I, I'm really annoyed, I'm really, really angry about this, like as if it had been caused by somebody else or it was happening elsewhere. The book stops with the Minister. At the end of the day, he's in charge. His Secretary-General uh, in the Department of Health is the account holder and the budget holder for the, the health budget. And both gentlemen sat there and, and told us uh, at length how annoyed and angry they were about this catastrophic overspend, as if it was somebody else uh, who had caused it. What the Minister fails to answer and what he will be asked again and again until we get answers mm. is what the hell was he doing while these costs were escalating out of control? Who was keeping an eye on the costs? And, you know, a lot of people have used the analogy of if you were building a house. Now, that's that's not a good analogy to use because it, it's way more complicated than building a house. But it is a building project. Mm. So they had, you know, they used this thing called a two-stage tender process. And that initially the uh, they, they tendered for the sort of the groundwork, they laid the foundations, they did that. Then they went out to tender again. Now, I mean, you know, Michael, your listeners are going to know this. You'll know this and I know this. The person who did the, the tender for the original foundation work and all the rest of it, the one who, are, who was already established and on site, they're already in a very, very good position to tender for that. So in a lot of ways, that process, while, you know, it, it might have merits, it really does favour the company that is already on site and has done a lot of that work. And that's where the costs 
started escalating. So let's not forget, I mean, it's less than uh, it, it's less than three years since um, Leo Varadkar, when he was Minister for Health, said with confidence that it was going to cost $630 million, that he was uh, confident that that would include, because he was pressed on it, that that would include the two satellite units and VAT, because they are, you know, the sort of possible additional costs. And he said that with confidence. Simon Harris then came along without any explanation. The cost had risen to 980 million euros. So we're talking about just shy of a billion. Mm. Simon Harris took it over and said, yes, I am confident it will be delivered for 980 million euros. And now we're sitting at the Health Committee uh, on Tuesday of this week and we're being told it's uh, likely to go to 1.7 billion. Mm. But nobody can give any assurances that it's not going to get to 2 billion. And And neither can mm. we get a decent explanation as to how the hell this happened. And that's uh, when you include uh, the cost of kitting out the hospital, of uh, fitting out the hospital. It's 1.433 I think at the moment, uh, the cost of the building itself. Uh, But what's your understanding of why the costs have soared so much? Well, it's it's extremely complex, the, the governance structures that they had. So for example I asked Tom Costello, who's the head of the Paediatric Hospital Development Board, I asked him how many meetings he had had with the minister. And his response was none. Mm. Um, but they have a design team and then they have the, 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 the board structure and the different teams that are established uh, by this. The, the way that it's run, it's extremely opaque. But we have yet to hear anybody take responsibility for the escalation. They simply come in, repeat the figures, Mm. and then say they're really angry about it. Mm. I mean, that is just not good enough, Michael. People, Mm. and any of of your listeners sitting there that have to balance their own budget, the same as I do, the same as you do, at the end of the week or the end of the month, uh, you know, people who have to run their house, run their car, do all of that stuff, they're looking at this and thinking, if I ran my life like that, I would be in the poor house 20 years ago. But I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. Is it as simple as that, that uh, somebody was asking for an unreasonable amount of money for the work and uh, the materials and uh, people are writing blank checks when they're asked for the money? Well, if we look at what happened originally, so the, uh, the, the board decided to go with the lowest tender okay mm. now just for, for, for the, the benefit of your listeners the lowest tender was 131 million euros cheaper than the next bid okay mm. so you know I mean that that to me sets off alarm bells I mean anyone getting work done in their house even if it's only putting up a few shelves if you get a couple of quotes if somebody comes in substantially below the next bidder I'm inclined to scratch my head and think well how come if other people can't do this Mm. Uh, for the amount that's being quoted. How come this company maintained that they can? And of course now we're facing a bill of 1.7 billion euros from the, uh, you know, a considerable multiple of uh, the original estimate. But by the time it came to the second stage, so for example, they didn't, uh, they didn't get a fixed price for the amount of cabling that they would need. Then it turns out they need 500 kilometres of cable. Now of course that's expensive. But it wasn't factored into the original tender. So, you know, the the Public Accounts Committee are going to be discussing this again today. I believe the Health Committee have to discuss this further. But I would also like to hear from the Taoiseach and from the Minister for Health exactly who the hell was keeping an eye on this while the costs spiralled out of control. Mm. And it won't be lost on your listeners, Michael, that yesterday 
our nurses and midwives and in, in, in Our Lady Alerts and, and, and other hospitals in, in Louth and the primary care centre in Balbriggan, our nurses and midwives were out on the picket line looking for what is effectively a, a modest enough pay increase, number one, OK, but they haven't put a figure on it, but I, I know they just want negotiations with the government at this stage. But what they want to do is try to bring in nurses so that we can stop the agency pay bill, which is currently running at €2 million Euros a week, so that we can stop the agency nurse and pay bill escalating out of control and on the one hand the Taoiseach says I have to be very careful I have to mind every penny mm-hmm. I have to I have to be very prudent with the finances and on the other hand it's like the Wild West over at the National Children's Hospital with the costs escalating out of control I mean just for a moment regardless of, of no, whether yeah, I'm sure you're not arguing though that two wrongs make a right at the same no, time No I'm not saying no, that but okay. I'm saying if you mm. were a nurse on the picket line yesterday mm. in the freezing cold yeah. and you're being told I have to be very responsible with money mm. and then you you know you look at the transcripts of the, the meeting with the Minister for Health and uh, the Secretary General mm. of the Department of Health and the way in which they say oh we're very angry about the cost escalation but you look mm. at we are where we are and we have to find the money from somewhere let's not forget that the money that will fund the overspend on the children's hospital will be taken from other capital projects. So there will be a 15% reduction in the availability. And the Taoiseach was very clear in this, yeah. that projects may have to be delayed. Go back to the idea of building a house. As you say, the two are not comparable, but I mean, it's something that maybe we can understand a little bit better. And if you get a, an estimate on the cost, uh, well, it's not going to go substantially over that estimate without approval. So how has it gone so much over what the government was expecting to pay than what it is now being asked to pay? Because there were no proper checks in place is my belief, but also because of the nature of the two-step process. Once they got the tender, they then tendered again, but there were no specific figures. So therefore, they tendered for, yes, we'll put in the electrics, yes, we'll put in the uh, the, the, the mechanical um, the, the mechanical piece and all without, of that. Without but we're not going it. to give. Yes, it wasn't costed properly, so therefore they couldn't have they couldn't have predicted. Which brings me back to my original point, mm. which is when the Taoiseach said when he was Minister for Health, six hundred and thirty okay. million all in, including VAS mm. and the satellites. Yeah. What did he think was making up that? Well, I, I, I don't. I, I don't know. I, and obviously he was wrong, uh, but. Uh, is it right that it, it should cost this amount? I mean, it seems as though you can build hospitals anywhere and everywhere else in the world far cheaper. This is going to be the most expensive hospital in the world. So mm-hmm. is the cost justifiable regardless of the process or the governance or whether they had costed stuff in advance? We need a children's hospital. Yes, but... Been it, talked about. No, no, but this has been talked about mm, since 1962. Mm, mm. And anyone who has ever been in Temple Street mm, in Crumlin, mm. um, you know, will tell you, we absolutely need a new children's hospital. Mm. The kids deserve it. And this hospital has all... Construction has already started. Yes, now, what mm. the government have done is they are paying PwC nearly half a million euros to conduct a report. I am hopeful that... From that report, we will be able to hear how some of those costs can, in fact, be scaled back because they need to start looking at that, how they can scale back those costs. Or the minister needs to come into the doll and explain to us exactly how the hell... But is it possible that that's the country that we live in, that to build a, a, a hospital of this sort, you need to spend two billion or thereabouts? But if that is the case, well, then they should have been honest with us mm. at the very beginning and said, 
this is going to cost two billion. Okay. And they should adjust the capital programme accordingly. But what they what they have said, and I mean, look, at you've co- you covered them um, on your radio station. We see them on the television. We see it in the newspapers. They're very, very quick in this government, and Minister Harris in particular, to run to a microphone and make an announcement about a project. But they are not so quick to do the follow-up work that is required to ensure that project is kept on budget and delivered on time. So we already have a situation now where this is going to be delayed. We were told 2021, it's now gone to 2022. And bearing in mind, and these are the HSE's own figures, for every day that the project is delayed beyond the estimated finish date, it costs €340,000. That's €10 million every month. I have to wrap up because we need to put a a microphone in front of uh, some of uh, the nurses who were on the picket line that you spoke about uh, yesterday. Uh, But thank you indeed uh, for joining us here on the programme this morning. Sinn Féin's spokesperson on health, Louise O'Reilly. Michael Reed on LMFM. The nurses who were striking outside of Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda that I was speaking about a moment ago were speaking to Marie Kearns yesterday. We're striking today because we are the lowest paid public servants in the country. We are the most qualified. We do the hardest job and we deserve a pay restoration. We didn't cause bank crisis. We worked through it for the sake of patients and for the sake of our families. We took pay cuts upon pay cuts upon pay cuts and now we just want what's what we deserve. How long are you a nurse? 14 years now. Um, I'm a midwife. We just want equal. We want parity. We want to be the same as the rest of our colleagues in the public sector. I want my three sons. If one of them would be a nurse, I'd be so proud. But I, I want I want the pay to be fair. I want the conditions to be good. We're not asking for millions, just parity. A lot of talk that you don't get breaks, that you end up working on longer than you should. We don't get to go to the toilet some days. Never mind breaks or something to eat. Uh, going to the toilet would be nice on a 12-hour shift, on a night shift. You know, I, I know my colleagues there two nights ago I don't think they got something to eat till, till six o'clock in the morning from what time quarter past eight we're we're flogged and we're stressed and we're tired so you know this is why we're here standing in the cold and we'll be out next week and the week after and the week after that we have to keep going it is a hard it was a very hard decision for us all to make but I think we just have decided that we have to look after the people of our you know the population and ourselves because people deserve better health care and we can't provide it on, on the way things are and that's the reason why we're here. It's not just all about the pay. The pay is something as well. But it's not all about everything else. The patients are the first and most important thing. And what would you say to the government who say, oh, if we give to the nurses, we'll have to give to everybody else? Well, they already do give to the other people because we're the lowest healthcare professional paid people. That's the wrong way around. But we work extra hours. We get less pay. And we have to still be academic. We have to do degrees and masters to get to this position. So do the other professions, but they also get more money and more respect. Have you anything to say to patients who may be affected, appointments cancelled, that maybe were waiting on procedures and might feel a bit frustrated that there's more strike action ahead? We're just very sorry, and that's the whole the truth. We don't want to do this, but we want to look after you, and we want to get you the best care possible. We, we want uh, just equality and safe staffing for the nurses. That's okay. really the main um, main uh, issue we okay. have. We all need to stand together, stay strong, fight for what we deserve. Conditions are terrible, the pay is, needs to be restored. That's all we're looking for. We're not looking for millions. For, you know, We love our job. We want to give the patients the best care that we can, that's all. 
Are you a nurse long? Uh, 14 years midwife in the labour ward, yeah. I don't want to be here at all, but we feel we had to do it. We're doing it for pay disparity for all. Uh, because of the crisis in recruitment and retention, we've all been forced to come out here today through lack of engagement from the HSE's part. What would you say to patients who've had appointments cancelled or procedures cancelled that maybe feel frustrated and then are looking down the road to possibly more days of strike action? This is happening on an ongoing basis. People aren't getting their appointments. They aren't being able to have their procedures done in a timely manner. And it's very unfortunate. And we are at the coalface of it. We are the ones who are talking to these people time and time again. And um, this is a taste of the future. This is what is going to be just the norm unless something changes within nursing and we're able to recruit and retain nurses. You're a student nurse and you're out on the picket. Is the pay as bad as what we're hearing? It is. Now, I'm on the roster placement at the minute, so we're lucky that we get some form of payment for this placement. We get about €800 a fortnight, which isn't a lot because a lot of people have to pay accommodation, travel fees and that. When we come out of college, I'll start on €29,000 after a four-year degree, which works out at about twelve fifty an hour. It's not a lot compared to physios or other allied health professionals who are earning 35000 plus. I work as a healthcare assistant and I can earn €15 Euro an hour minimum, with, and that's with no degree. And critics might say, but well, you knew that when you went into nursing. They can say that, but the pay is substantially less than it was 10 years ago. Staff that came out post-2011 are in much lower pace and that has not been restored. Do you think you'll stay in Ireland? There's a lot of talk about student nurses. As soon as they qualify, they're gone. I plan on staying for a couple of years' experience, but I do plan on going abroad, so I do after qualifying. And I know that many of my class do not plan on staying in Ireland and they're looking at moving abroad straight away and have already started. And is that because of better conditions and pay or because they want to see the world? It's a bit of both. Obviously, young people, they want to travel, they want to see the world, but other countries, they offer better conditions, better pay and better relocation fees. Just attract you more than the HSE. The HSE don't try to keep the students. You're on the picket line today. What's your feeling? Well, I'm feeling cold at the moment, is my main feeling. Um, but yeah, really a great bunch out tonight today and really inspired and hopefully we'll all band together and a lot of support from the public. So hopefully it'll all work out, yeah, and we won't have to go into another week of it next week. Was it a tough decision for you personally to vote yes to come out and strike? Yes, it was. I have five children, five young children, all under seven. Oh so um, yeah, no, it was a tough decision, you know. Um, but at the same time, I need to think of them and their future and the amount of work that we put in and the amount that we give... I have to think it needs to be reflected. How long have you been a nurse? I'm a nurse, a long time now. I'm a nurse, 20 years, yeah. And that time, has it got better or worse? Worse. We take on an awful lot more now, an awful, awful lot more, and a lot more duties. And it's not reflected in our pay. And I see the young girls coming up now. I only had uh, two students yesterday I was working with, and both of them are planning on leaving the minute they qualify. So I just think, where is the service going, and what can we provide patients with? And a typical day, I hear stories about not being able to take breaks, working on longer because of the workload. Would that apply to you and you with such a, a young family and a big family? Yeah, yeah. I'm actually back from maternity leave now. Uh, but there when I was 37 weeks pregnant I was in work and I worked a 12 hour day with a 15 minute break and yeah so it was, it's a lo- it's a long tough day but you know we, we, we just we, we give our time and we just don't take care of ourselves yeah very much so So what would you say to Simon Harris today as you're on the picket uh, Give us the raise Simon <laughs> There you go. Some hard-working nurses based in Drogheda at Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital speaking to Marie Kearns from the picket line yesterday.
Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have come to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. And so many of them. I'm trying to sort through them here as I'm speaking to you, Michael. Mm. First, I'm going to go to Stephen, who contacted us via Facebook and was listening in and says, Michael, can, can you ask Michael to explain what the backstop means or what it is and what is a deal? Like, what kind of deal are we talking about and what is the deal for? I really don't get this whole thing. Please stop talking about Brexit. It's hard to listen to. Let the UK go off on their own. No hard border needed. No big deal, says Stephen. Mm, OK, so how does all of that work? Uh, mm. So that's his message to us. Yeah, well, I suppose uh, the backstop is uh, to make sure that there wouldn't be a border. That's a, an insurance policy uh, that they have uh, in place. Uh, that's in the draft uh, deal, which was agreed, uh, negotiated by and agreed to by Mrs May on behalf of her government. Uh, she hasn't got the support of the parliament. Uh, but effectively, it would mean that Northern Ireland would stay in uh, the customs union and uh, the single market on less or until another trade agreement was reached so that you wouldn't have customs tariffs and uh, the regulations uh, wouldn't be breached and all that sort of thing so that it would be able to go on because it'll be a separate state different rules different uh, regimes and uh, if they go out without a deal you talk about World Trade Organization rules and regulations and tariffs and all that sort of thing and that just has to be the way. East Meath councillor uh, Finnegal Sharon mm. Tolan tweeted us during the interview oh, and says, okay, okay. "Am I hearing this right? Jim Wells mm. has just proposed Republic of Ireland move our border mm. and essentially become part of the UK." Mm. Beggar's belief. Mm. Yeah, well, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think it's beggar's belief. I think that there's. Uh, some merit in it except that it would mean that we would have a different relationship with Europe than the rest of Europe would have and as a union that's not a runner. John from Navin a few weeks ago I said Theresa May was stupid now she's backed herself into a corner with no way out. Pat from Delir, the backstop is there as an insurance policy. If there is no agreement, if there was electronic checks in place, they would have them in Gibraltar, which is an English border. Mm. We don't want to reintroduce uniformed border, borders and custom checks. That is why the backstop is so important. Mm. Mm-hmm. Listening to Jim Wells, he really doesn't seem to have the interest of the majority of Irish people on this island uh, where is it all going to end up when you hear conversation like yeah, that? Yeah, well, that really is the problem because mm-hmm. uh, the idea of the backstop, the backstop is designed to stop a hard border. Yes. And the problem is if we insist on the backstop, it might result in a hard border because there'll be no deal. John was in hospital for the last couple of weeks, but is home now. And he'd like to know, what does Michael think of Theresa May now? <laughs> Do you want to share that, Michael? Yeah, well, I, 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 I can tell you what I think of her now. But the only problem is I might change my mind in five minutes time. Uh, and I think that uh, is really what I, I think of her. I, I think uh, it depends on the moment uh, because uh, she seems very, very capable of telling you one thing today and something else tomorrow. Well, that's what Declan phoned in about. Declan was saying that over the past couple of months when all this... There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. was going on in relation to Brexit. He did have... A kind of, uh, what word would he say? Admiration for Theresa May. He wouldn't be a big supporter, but yeah. he did have admiration for her because, you know, he felt that she was kind of trying to work through this. But now in the last few days, he really does believe that she is capable of anything and can change her mind so quickly. When you think of all the effort mm. that went into that agreement and putting a backstop in place, now she has turned her back on this and she is no friend of mm. Ireland. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's always so confusing and so contradictory and so ironic and so on. And everybody's been shaking their heads and scratching their heads and saying, what's she up to? She knows she's asking her MPs, the Tories, to vote against something she negotiated and agreed with the rest of Europe, the withdrawal agreement, which included backstop. And she said to them, vote against that. And now she's saying, well, yes. now I have a mandate and uh, she's going back. And uh, people say, what, what is she doing? She she knows the rest of Europe is going to say no. Uh, and the theory, I think, uh, that most people were putting forward was that she was talking down the clock so that they'd run out of time and say, well, look, we yes. have to decide now one way or the other. And then this morning... Jeremy Hunt comes out and says, uh, well, maybe we need more time. (laughs) So I don't know. And that's probably Mm, what will happen. I don't know. If I was Mm, to put money on it now at this stage, I think maybe there'll be be more time given. Well, well, no matter how much time uh, there is, (laughs) is it possible to find a solution? Well, that's very true. That's another... another I mean, the the most obvious solution, I think, at this stage is uh, that uh, the United Kingdom stays in the European Union, Mm -hmm. which would require a second referendum and all that. Yes. But they'd be the laughingstock of Europe. Yes. You know, they're a very proud nation, a very proud nation of people, and they would undoubtedly be the laughingstock of Europe. I mean, it'd be very hard, uh, and maybe it's not politically correct to say it, but it it would be very hard not to uh, sort of rub it in, wouldn't it? You know, I mean, if you were speaking to your friends uh, or somebody else yes. for that matter, you know. True, true, Michael. And I know, and the other thing is, though, if they, it does go to another referendum, mm. say it did, yeah. would you really, you know, there's always that thing that there could be another vote to go again, mm. that they may... No, you know that yeah, you know it's, it may, it's not a done deal that they mm. vote to say. No, no, no. Quite so, possible. So that then we'd continue. have to do yeah. it all over again. Mm. Yeah. Maybe the easiest thing to do is to d- delay it and prepare for a no deal, uh, so that it's not as bad as it might be. Anyway, as you say, mm. if only we had a crystal ball, because mm. you could be here all day, and we still well, wouldn't be yeah, any closer yeah, to, we may to be no here for <laughs> Not for, just the rest well, of the day, but for many years to come. Um, can I move on yep. to the nurses if I can for because of the strike and we've had lots of response mm. both to today's show and yesterday's show. Charlie from Navin phoned in to say that it was a pleasure to join the picket line in Navin yesterday and he said there was 99% support for the nurses from passing cars and people on foot. He says, I feel that they 
I'm glad that they are standing up for what he feels is totally correct, but saddened that it has come to this. Brian from uh, Drogheda says the government insists they have no money to pay the nurses, but mm. yet can find money to give themselves an increase, can find money to pay for the overrun in the new children's hospital, could find money to pay unsecured bondholders in December. Who do the TDs have to ask to get their rise? Nurses deserve their money. The work they do goes above and beyond the call of duty. Okay. An upset Dunlear listener contacted mm. the show to say, I have to say, Michael, I was disgusted with your show yesterday with the way you spoke about our nurses. Mm. Another listener, Marion. Yeah, a lot of people said that and I have to say, uh, fair enough. Like, uh, and I, I, I don't mind uh, being criticised and I'm uh, very happy to get criticised. But I, I didn't really understand the criticism yesterday. I mean, I did ask very hard questions and I know that of uh, the INMO rep, Tony Fitzpatrick, who was with us. Uh, but uh, why it upset people to hear questions being asked. Uh, I, I, I believe the, the questions that were asked were legitimate questions. Uh, I don't know if uh, they just didn't want those questions to be asked or they didn't like the answers or what the case was, but uh, I, I, I'm a little bit confused as to why people were upset. Mary was listening to the show mm. and she felt you were criticising the nurses and says, I can't agree with Michael as the nurses are overworked and underpaid. Mm. They can't compare with the nurses of the past because of what they are doing now, what they are trained to do and says that, you know, she just feels it was very unfair. Mm. Uh, actually, when you were up on the picket line yesterday, yes. uh, I think some of uh, the nurses felt that too. Uh, and you told me that when you came back. Yeah. Yes, mm. a lot mm. of the, a couple of nurses did mm. mention that they were listening to the show yesterday and mm. they were quite upset. Mm. That's mm. the word I put on it. They weren't, you know, mm. very, they weren't angry towards me mm. or anything, but they just said, you know, they felt let down mm. uh, by you, mm. that they had been listening in and they were quite upset mm. over the comments. Mm. Um, it was an unusual um, picket yesterday today I felt Michael because pickets before that I go to they're normally very noisy with a lot of chanting or something mm. I felt it was kind of a very dignified uh, protest it was huge numbers mm. outside both gates and I'm, I'm talking about Drogheda that's where yeah, I was yeah, Our Lady yeah, of Lords yeah, Hospital yeah, yeah. I know they were all over they were Nav and, and Loud County mm. as well but there was a huge numbers outside both mm. gates and they just, you know, walked around with their posters held high. I felt from talking, I spoke to people, a lot of that weren't interviewed, you know, they weren't featured on the package there that I did, but a lot of them just really feel demoralised and didn't want to be out. Yeah, you know, that yeah. they really did feel mm. it was a last resort. Mm. They were, it wasn't something that they were taking pleasure in. That's mm. definitely what I felt at mm. Our Lady of Lourdes. Anyway. Well, I'm sure that's the case. Uh, I must say I was uh, up at the hospital last night and uh, didn't see any sign of a picket. I was very surprised. I thought the picket would have been on the hospital uh, until 8 o'clock this morning uh, and uh, people would have noticed that on uh, the news when Sinead was reporting uh, for RTE last night uh, and that there were no nurses uh, picketing outside the hospital. I I thought that was uh, very, very unusual. I thought the picket would be in place for as long as the strike. Uh, just uh, going back to what some of the people were saying, yes. I, I've never criticised nurses in my life. That I certainly never intended to. Uh, and if it came across that way, I, I'd be very sorry to hear that. Uh, but I have nothing but admiration for the nurses. I do think that there were legitimate questions to be asked. Uh, and nothing but admiration for the type of work they do and how they do it and how overworked they are. And I've said that many times in the past. Uh, but I, I do think that there were questions to be asked of, of uh, the trade union yesterday yes. uh, and indeed uh, the legitimacy of the strike uh, and uh, those questions uh, were asked and they were answered and uh, I believe they were legitimate questions and people uh, can 
view that otherwise and hear the responses in whichever way they wish. And Michael, mm-hmm. I did actually explain mm-hmm. that yeah, to yeah, yeah, um, yeah. a group of nurses that I was speaking to mm-hmm. and I did mm-hmm. mention an actual fact. I know you personally and I mm-hmm. did say that have had experience in the hospital. You, ha- mm-hmm. you were a patient in the hospital and you, you, you speak nothing but highly of the, the attention and the mm-hmm. care that you got when you were in there but that your role as a presenter is that you must ask the questions mm-hmm. That you must. Uh, well, I, I remember 1998. I mean, I was working as a uh, reporter then, and uh, I remember the strike and how Liam Doran uh, was only a wet day in the job, and how Phil DeHay was only a wet jo- day in the job for this strike. And for the last 20 years, Phil. Uh, uh, Liam Doran has been uh, uh, suggesting there may be strike action and he hasn't taken it since because I don't think the uh, strike in 1998 was very effective. I'm not sure that this one is going to be very effective. Uh, There's a public service pay agreement that the nurses have signed up to. Uh, It would seem as though they've decided to put that to one side. Uh, And why is that the case when the trade union signed up to that on their behalf? And these are the questions that I was putting to Tony Fitzpatrick yesterday. Well, look, that's all we mm, can say about yep. it. I know, mm. and as I did say, it sparked a lot of reaction mm. from our listeners. Mm. There definitely is a groundswell of support going on the calls oh, that are coming in here. They do have a huge mm. amount of support. People feel, and they understand that from the, where the nurses mm. are coming from, they do feel that this is a last resort and they can't put up with the conditions any longer. There's no doubt about it. Uh, there is also no doubt uh, that this is going nowhere quickly. And if 20... 5,000 people suffer in 24 hours. Another 25,000 people will suffer on Tuesday. Uh, 25,000 on Thursday, maybe more like 30 or 40 because uh, this starts to grow and grow because of the backlog. And then you go into three days of strike and then you can go into all out strike. Last time around it was three weeks of strike. But as the girl said to me, the nurse said to me, Mm it wasn't girl, uh, the nurse said to me yesterday, uh, we'll be here next week Mm. and we'll be here the following Mm. week if we Mm. have to. And the following week, there's a steely determination there that they're going to see this through, oh, as, as there was in 1998 when there was three weeks of strike uh, and uh, yes uh, the, the, the training uh, became a, a graduate uh, course uh, and now nurses uh, uh, are graduates uh, but uh, other than that uh, there was little, I mean there was a, a, a far fewer nurses then than there are now uh, we've 35,000 members, 40,000 nurses uh, in comparison to about 25,000 at the time. Well, I was out and about, as you mm. know, also yesterday talking to people and mm. we'll be playing that tomorrow, getting mm. views of ordinary mm. people on the street. Oh, there's no doubt. Yeah, yeah. So, but, yeah. We, early, we, early let the, we let the people have the say. Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and everybody is right. The, in what they're saying. Of course yes. they are, yeah. Mm. All right, Michael. Well, we finish on that because I have loads mm. more and if we okay. if we get a chance, I'll come in again later on and All if right. not, I'll read them out tomorrow. The okay, thanks for that, Okay, I'm sure we'll find some more time and if you'd like to add to what's been said, ring Marie now. Our telephone number is 1850 Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, we spoke about uh, the nurses' strike as it was looming on a Monday with local councillors who are members of uh, the Regional Health Forum, Dublin North East, uh, Mark Deary of uh, the Green Party and uh, Sinn Féin's uh, Darren O'Rourke. Both of the councillors are back on the line with us uh, because you've uh, both attended uh, a meeting of uh, the Health Forum and, uh, of course, the strike took place yesterday. Uh, Mark Deary, tell us uh, what the HSE was saying about this uh, because we've had one day of strike and there are another five days that are scheduled at this stage. Yes, uh, Michael. Um, The impression I, I took away from the meeting was that the senior management who were present um, were of the view that a one-day strike could probably, and the consequences of it could probably be managed 
uh, but that, to use their own phrase, chaos looms if, uh, if the dispute drags into next week and becomes two days with one day in between, effectively three days of disruption, um, and that they, I, I got the impression that they didn't feel that there was any way that that situation could be properly managed. And you're directly um, I, quoting a HSE official. Mary, Mary, Mary Walsh was representing senior management at the meeting on the day. Unfortunately, none of the hospital directors were there. Mm. Uh, they, they sometimes are, but uh, I can understand why they weren't, given the day that was in it with the preparations they had to make. But yes, uh, Mary Walsh, who's the chief officer in, 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 for the community health in North Dublin, uh, was representing that wider group on the day. She's a former uh, hospital manager in Blanchardstown and um, director of nursing in in Conley, mm. uh, looking back over her career pathway as I was this morning. So she, she understands, she's close to nursing, uh, a former nurse herself. She, she recalled the 1998 um, strike when, um, when she was a younger nurse in Beaumont. And... Um, she said little did she believe on day one that three weeks later they would still be out. And that is the big nightmare scenario as but, far but, as... But, 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 but I mean, the, the, the point is, uh, it's a dramatic statement. And it's a statement, it ma- it's a statement made by a HSE official, not in a glib way, but to the health forum. And to suggest that chaos looms in provision of health services is something to be concerned about. It surely is, and it, it, it absolutely puts the onus on everybody who's got any role to play in resolving this issue to do so quickly. And do you believe that that's the case? Because it, it seems, from what we understand of it at this stage, that it is not the case, that there is such a divide between the two sides in this dispute that there's no obvious resolution, let alone an immediate one. I listened carefully to uh, Professor Anthony Staines from DCU yesterday, who, who teaches and writes on health systems, and he was able to identify uh, various spaces in the in the apparent uh, brick wall uh, that exists between the two sides at the moment. It will require creativity. It will require goodwill. Um, I didn't think that um, yesterday's uh, very staunch defence of the government's position um, gave much so- sign of hope that uh, that creativity and and goodwill would be uh, in, in plentiful supply. But they are needed now. Uh, what Anthony Staines identified was some uh, some uh, reduction in the use of agency nursing while recognising mm. the flexibility that they give is necessary, and I accept that completely, but that there's an over-reliance there that could be addressed. That pay could be linked to continued professional development. I'm not sure if that's acceptable to nurses, but um, he was able to at least create certain, I think, platforms for debate and discussion that I think need to be availed of. And um, again, I said it on Monday, and in fact then on, on Tuesday there was engagement which unfortunately didn't go any further. The Labour Court decided there was no common ground. But uh, common ground does need to be found in the, co- in the coming days, uh, in my view. Um, and I do believe that the onus is on, on um, the HSE and government side to recognise the, the, the um, legitimate uh, demands of the uh, INMOU. Uh, INMO. Darren O'Rourke, you would never be considered to be a, a cheerleader for Simon Harris, but uh, I'm sure that you can only agree with him when he says that there was a, a, an agreement, that there is an agreement, that the trade union on behalf of the nurses has signed up to the Public Service Stability Agreement and that the government is keeping its half of the agreement. 
I don't agree with him, Michael. Um, uh, it mightn't come as, as any surprise to you. I, I don't agree with him, and, and, and I actually think um, for a guy who's, uh, by all accounts, uh, very capable and endeared himself to a lot of people last year in uh, his efforts around the Repeal the Eighth campaign, I think he's having a nightmare in health. Um, uh, I, I, I think. Well, well uh, okay, no, don't, don't broaden it, please. But just stick to, st- stick to the public service pay agreement. Uh, I mean, that is in place, and the nurses are signed up to it through the INMO. But the nurses have disputed it. From the, if you look at, you know, it was on the basis of the the public sector pay commission, of, of which there's dispute. There's dispute in relation to, for example, there's dispute in relation to the number of nurses that are practicing or registered in, in Ireland. Um, the argument whether we whether those nurses uh, um, you know are, are overworked and under I don't think there's any dispute in relation to whether nurses are overworked. There's certainly an, an argument of, of whether they're they're paid sufficiently well. And um, we had government ministers on uh, essentially misrepresenting the starting uh, pay for for nurses, which I think is a significant thing. And and, and the, tr- the the point. Well, I, 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 I think what they were talking about was the average staff nurse pay, uh, which is obviously nothing to do with the starting uh, rates for nurses. No. But, but but if there is an agreement in place, uh, and if there are these issues, why did the trade union sign up to the agreement? And if the trade union signed up to the agreement as it did, why is it now breaking that agreement by taking its members off the job? But it's an industrial dispute, Michael, and industrial dispute, it's not the first industrial dispute. Oh, no, 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 that's to ignore the question. At the time of the agreement, uh, that's the time to sort out the industrial dispute, rather than sign up to it and then say, I shouldn't have signed up to it. No, in in, in fairness to to the INMO, you you can deal with, um, there were elements, of course, of the the, the recent pay agreement in terms of dealing with new entrants and yellow pack nurses, which I, I, I presume, and I don't speak for the IMO, INMO, um, I, I presume that, that there were elements of that that they could live with and, and support it and endorsed and their, their membership endorsed. But let's be clear, something like 90% of nurses have supported this call for industrial action based on two elements. One is in terms of the safety of the service that they are delivering. And second is for, for, for pay quality with equivalently, myself included, myself included as a medical scientist, I've said that before, they're looking for pay equivalence because they're equally qualified and in truth do a harder job than, than, than people who are getting paid significantly more mm. than them. But my and, question and the remains the, the, the same, despite the arguments that you're making, and they are valid arguments, but were they not valid arguments at the time that this agreement was reached? And if those arguments were so valid, why did the trade union agree to the pay uh, 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 agreement with the government? Well, they can answer for themselves, Michael, but Mm. I will make this point, that negotiations are... They're, they're not black and white, and and, and I think that's the, that's what Simon Harris needs to be see, needs to see in relation to. This. I think Simon Harris, and and I think it sits in a, in a broader mm. context. I I think Simon Harris, rather than you know burying his head in the sand or the government burying their head in the sand, actually need to see this as an opportunity within the context of the Slauncher Care reform proposals that they are supposed to agree with to see it as an opportunity for progressive reform mm. within nursing. I think, and, and, and I, I, mm. don't think, I don't think there's a proposal there or a realistic expectation that it's 12% pay tomorrow morning. I think if you talk to nurses about pay, 
terms and conditions, uh, study leave, opportunities for, for progression, opportunities for mm. advanced practice, I think you have a basis for reforming and transforming the, the nursing sector in Ireland. But that it's the public who suffer, isn't it? I mean, the, the reality is it's, it, it's nurses that suffer and it's the public that suffer. Mm. And, you know, that's, and, and that's the unfortunate reality of it. And when it comes to emergency services or critical services, if you like, uh, there's always this question as to whether people in those roles should have the right to strike, to withdraw no, their labour. No, but, but at the same time, Michael, and, and you saw this from a, a consultant radiologist mm. in, in the paper at the weekend, we... we 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 question whether they have the right to strike, but we we will hold them absolutely to account if there's any blip or mistake or or error in clinical practice, despite the fact that they are doing. Well, there was plenty of them. There were plenty of them yesterday, and they will continue, uh, and uh, the ramifications will continue, and that will grow uh, and grow like a snowball does when it goes down a hill, because uh, the more services you withdraw the uh, longer the waiting times come uh, and it is the public uh, just if I could conclude on that point uh, with Mark Deary just uh, to come back to you for a moment uh, I mean there were people who weren't visited in their homes yesterday there were people who were waiting maybe three or four months for an operation frightened that they may not survive that operation uh, because some of these operations are, are very serious uh, they're preparing themselves fasting and uh, preparing for time mm-hmm. in hospital and time off work and all of that kind of thing and they, uh, then suddenly have it cancelled they don't know when it's going to be rescheduled I mean, there are significant problems as a result of this type of action. Uh, is, is there any question about the appropriateness of it? I, I think that that question has to be constantly asked. I think the impact on patients has to be constantly monitored versus the um, the overall uh, gain that the, the strike would hopefully achieve. And as, as, as Darren says, I think the opportunity here, and there is an opportunity to, uh, to, to reconfigure um, nursing and you know, improve the quality of the job, uh, I think that that could be a very significant gain to patients in the longer term, but there are short-term impacts that need to be constantly monitored. It is there, there are there are there are ethical issues around all of that that need to be uh, built into any equation around f- further action. I, I would I would trust nursing that they will make make provision for critical cases, um, um, but yes, there are, there's no doubt there's inconvenience, and as I said already, it it, it does it does behove everybody involved to try and minimize that and find a resolution. Okay. I, uh, I, 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 was, I was actually speaking uh, to, to nurses on the picket yesterday and the kind of, um, the kind of observations they were making uh, had uh, related to pay but ultimately had to do with the quality of oh, the work uh, that they were uh, doing uh, and the future uh, of yeah, the profession. Absolutely, and I don't doubt that yeah. for a moment. Look, I have to yeah. leave it there, but thank you both uh, indeed for joining us. Green Party Councillor Mark Deary and Sinn Féin's Darren O'Rourke. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, to European matters. Uh, maybe we'll talk about Brexit if we have uh, time, but to something far more important uh, because uh, the European Union is set to recognise uh, the value of credit unions here and around uh, the world. Marion Harkin is a member of uh, the European Parliament and co-chair of uh, the Credit Union Interest Group in the European Parliament. She's on the line and uh, nominated uh, to be MEP of the Year. Good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us. Tell us a little bit about your nomination. Well, uh, Michael, and every year they have awards for MEP of the Year. I've been lucky enough to win it on two previous occasions for my work in employment and social affairs and work in with volunteers. And this is 
under the economic and, and tax and budget section. And there are three nominees, and I have been nominated by credit unions, basically for the work I've done in the Parliament to support credit unions and to make sure that European law, European legislation is suitable for credit unions because they're very different institutions to banks. They're member-owned. They're not-for-profit. Very often they're small. So you need to make sure that they don't have the same level of requirements, let's say, as a large multinational bank. So in a nutshell, that's the work I've been doing Mm. for about the last nine, ten years in the Parliament. And to be honest, while it's lovely to be nominated, um, as I said, there are three nominees in this Mm -hmm. section, and that's lovely. But what really pleases me is that it was the World Council of Credit Unions nomination. And uh, the recognition of your work in the European Parliament is recognition of the importance of the role of credit unions. Absolutely. And it's it's recognition that the, the legislation that we have at European level must take uh, the, specific, the specificities of credit unions into account. And, and part of the problem, Michael, has been that while credit unions are hugely important in Ireland, in the UK, in Malta, and they are also increasing in importance in countries like Poland, for example, they're not across the EU. So while you have community banks, let's say in Germany or France or whatever, you don't have actual credit unions. So it's really important that the the number of countries uh, where there are credit unions, that we make sure that they don't sort of get gobbled up along with all other financial institutions. So obviously the movement is growing. It's huge in the United States and Australia, places like that, but it's not as strong in parts of Europe. But this really, um, I suppose, recognises that uh, the regulation for credit unions has to be appropriate for -for not-for-profit financial institutions and that we can't ask the same from them we do from the bank. All right, we're running over time, so very brief on yep. time. So very briefly, before uh, you leave us, can I ask you uh, what your thoughts are this morning on what has been uh, another dramatic Brexit week? Uh, we've had all of uh, the stuff in Westminster and the talk uh, that perhaps uh, the objective was uh, to run the clock down until this morning Jeremy Hunt suggested that perhaps the UK needed more time. Yes, well, it, it was always going to come to that. I mean, Theresa May was basically sent back to Brussels to reopen a negotiation that she had spent two years negotiating and signed off on. I mean, to me, to be honest with you, Michael, it was demeaning for her parliament to do that to her because there was nowhere to go. And it was very clear from everything that was said yesterday. But if Theresa May came back and said, look, the red lines that I put in place day one, no to the customs union, no to the single market. If she came back and said, look, I'm prepared to move a little bit on those, then, of course, there could be renegotiation. The only reason we needed the backstop in the first place was because of her red lines. So that can't be done in two weeks because that's the Mm -hmm. amount of time that's left uh, before the British Parliament would need to start putting legislation in place. So 
So the British will have to ask for further time. But equally, it won't be just enough to ask for more time. They will also, I believe, have to uh, indicate clearly that they are prepared to move on some of their red lines. Because that's what negotiation is. Negotiation isn't... um, oh, well, we agreed this, but I'll tell you, there's a bit I don't like and I want to change. One change means another change. And the British also have to be careful because if they open this withdrawal agreement, it's not just open for them, it's open for everybody. And by that I mean, for example, will um, the Spanish, you know, mm-hmm. have issues around Gibraltar, etc. So opening this is not just a simple issue, but I think most people recognise that if the British come back and say, we're prepared to negotiate, and negotiating means we are prepared to compromise, then I think there's enough goodwill here to give, uh, in fact, I know there is, give them extra time they need to to have one more go at this. But I'll tell you one thing, Mm -hmm. Michael, Mm -hmm. if if just for 30 seconds. Everybody talks about Theresa May and she's brave and she's plucky. What level she is. But we need to remember this. Throughout this whole process, the European Parliament has been kept informed fully. Every two months we vote on the issues mm. so that we are in line with the negotiators. Theresa May did none of that. She unilaterally decided the red lines. She didn't ask Parliament. So it's her own fault that she has found herself with a deal that her own Parliament can't sign off on because she never asked. Well, she made the deal and asked her own Parliament not to sign off on it, to vote against it effectively and betrayed everybody, reneged on the commitment that she made. Uh, But that is is the space we're in. I think you were a little bit more optimistic than me a moment ago and maybe that's the note to leave it on. We leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed. Thank you indeed. Marion Harkin, independent member of the European Parliament. Now let's go to Drogheda Garda Station. Garda Ken Bogan is on the line to make an appeal for us. Uh, Good morning to you and uh, thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, This is an appeal for a 16-year-old boy who's missing for the last three weeks or so. Yes, good morning, Michael. Yeah, I'd like to make an appeal on relation to the missing uh, child, Samuel Meloso. He's a 16-year-old boy who resides in the Drogheda area. Samuel failed to return home on the 10th of January. We believe that he may have tried to make his way to Donegal as we're aware that he has some family in that area. Um, I'll just give you a brief description. Samuel is five foot eight, black hair, brown eyes, uh, of thin build, and on the day in question he was wearing a black tracksuit with a red stripe, a grey hoodie, and black and white runners. So we're appealing to anyone who may have sighted Samuel in around them time frames in the Drada area or indeed in upon public transport, and anyone with information, if they could contact uh, my colleagues at Drada Garda Station on 041 All right. So uh, I suppose in particular for anybody uh, who may have been en route themselves to or from Donegal and may have encountered him on public transport or hitching a lift, as uh, the case may be. Yeah, so any locations in around the train station, the bus station, or indeed, as you say, um, hitchhiking a lift um, in that direction, um, wearing the clothes as described, we'd ask people to just have a think and if any information comes to light to contact yourself. Okay, Fifth, uh, 16 years of age, 5 foot 8, black hair, slim build, brown eyes, uh, Samuel Meloso. Samuel Meloso. 
yeah. that's how you pronounce it. Okay, thank you indeed. Um, people can contact uh, Drogheda Garda Station 0419874200 if they do have anything that can help with that appeal. Undoubtedly, uh, it's of great concern now, three weeks on, uh, since he went missing on the 10th of January in Drogheda for his family. Our thanks there to Garda Ken Bogan of Drogheda Garda Station. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Very cold weather out there as we were hearing uh, in uh, the headlines and parts of uh, the country uh, dropped to minus four overnight. Indeed, it's very cold all over and uh, I think they're talking about between minus two and minus five uh, tonight and as a result of that, there's a lot of concern of course for people on the streets. You've an appeal there, Marie, from Drogheda Homeless Aid. Is That's it? right, uh, Michael. Mm-hmm. Drogheda Homeless Aid are activating a cold weather response plan together with Loud County Council and they're asking anyone sleeping rough to contact them during the severe weather for immediate temporary emergency accommodation and this can be done by either calling uh, their phone number and I'll give that out now Michael mm. it's 0419834492 so that's 0419834492 for anybody that may be needing temporary emergency accommodation or you can call to their premises which is on the North Strand in Drogheda. Right, and they'll find somewhere indoors for everybody by the sounds of it, especially during uh, this cold spell. If you know of somebody perhaps uh, you'd make contact with them there or elsewhere as uh, the case may be. The homeless crisis continues uh, of course. Uh, it's unusual to talk about uh, a drop in the number of people who are homeless in this country but that is uh, the case according to the latest figures which are for December which showed a small drop of 215 people from that figure which now stands at 9,753 people. That's for the month of December. The Minister has said though that it is a small drop and it's not unusual uh, to see a a drop of uh, the number of people who are homeless in December because of the time of year and uh, people's habits at that time of the year. Let's uh, talk about this and some of uh, uh, the other issues related to it with Wayne Stanley, who's policy analyst with Focus Ireland. And uh, a very good morning to you, Wayne, and thanks uh, for joining us. I, I take it uh, what the Minister means is uh, that people uh, tend to, to spend time with family and friends, or family and friends are, are more willing to take people in because it's Christmas. That, that's exactly the case. I mean, uh, the uh, downward trend that we saw for between November and December this year would be very similar in fact, almost exactly, percentage-wise, almost exactly the same as we saw November to December last year. And last year, then, in January, we saw we see a spike. Um, now, obviously, we'd, we'd be hopeful that wouldn't happen this year, but the trend is, is there for a number of years that we see this uh, end-of-year drop and then um, increase then. Um, so that's mm. uh, that's to be expected. I mean, it is very much, I mean, if you look again, looking at the figures, the downward trend is driven by families, um, uh, leaving homelessness in the month of December and that it does seem to be kind of extended family pulling them in, particularly where there's children involved. People don't want them to be uh, in homeless accommodation over the Christmas and they pull them in for at least that week of Christmas and more and then um, it, it, people have to generally then, not generally, but people do have to mm-hmm. represent or uh, more. another aspect of it is people maybe who are on the brink of becoming homeless, a landlord says, oh, well, no, I'm not going to put you out over Christmas, we'll, we'll put it over into January or February uh, to get an extension on the extensions on their notice to quit and aspects like that that 
hold off the, the, the number of families coming in to homelessness in the December month. Okay, so whilst it's welcome to see a drop in the numbers, nothing to get excited about, or at least not yet. Uh, it'll be uh, the end of this month before we can tell if there's been progress. Yeah, that's that, that's exactly the case. I mean, uh, any drop in, in homeless figures is good to see, and it means that less children spent Christmas in homeless accommodation, and that has to be welcomed. I mean, that is a that is a good thing. But uh, yeah, in terms of the, I suppose the policy framework uh, that we're working in, um, it is something that we do see. So we we know that the stresses that are out there in terms of the private rental market, in terms of the housing crisis, are still there and are still going to be. They're going to be pushing people into homelessness in the new year as well, and that's, you know, that's something we need to get to grips with. Okay, and most of them. I mean, when we talk about the nine thousand seven hundred and fifty-three people who were homeless for Christmas, uh, it's an incredible amount of people in itself. Uh, uh, a shameful figure, uh, but most of them would be in emergency accommodation. Oh, they would. It, it, all the, this number is people in uh, emergency accommodation. So this is um, the national uh, statistics, and that is based on uh, the number of people purely in emergency accommodation. So it doesn't include, um, say, families in uh, serve in. Um, uh, yeah. Domestic abuse uh, services. It doesn't include Refugees, people who are, uh, you know, hidden homeless who are sleeping on roofs, sleeping on couch, or sleeping on people's couches, yeah. um, waiting, hoping to get some place to live. All those, all that kind of hidden homelessness isn't it isn't captured in this, and mm-hmm. couldn't be, to be fair. Mm. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and indeed, direct provision for that matter. Uh, and uh, of course, uh, the state continues to spend uh, an awful lot of money on paying uh, for people to rent property. Uh, 200 million in HAP payments uh, over four years. Uh, it's uh, an incredible problem that the government has grappled with. Uh, we were hearing the appeal there from Draw to Homeless Aid. Undoubtedly, uh, that is similar to uh, what agencies across uh, the country are saying to people, including yourselves in folk. Ireland uh, this morning uh, that get in out of the very cold weather it, it, it's a frightening thought uh, to think of people sleeping on the streets in this weather. Absolutely and we would say to anybody if they're aware of somebody uh, sleeping rough who perhaps wouldn't be engaged in, in services or they, they're not, they don't seem to be moving on or whatever do get in contact with our services um, uh, or with your, your local homeless services in the Dublin region. Uh, there's a number that people can ring uh, mm-hmm. There's a number that people can ring to um, to make the local authorities aware and they will send out a team who will go and speak to them and try and draw them back into homeless uh, services and get them out of the cold. Okay, well, it's not just cold, it's dangerously cold if exactly. uh, you're sleeping on uh, the streets. And uh, I see research from Trinity College uh, this week, uh, first of its kind, it says, uh, suggests that mortality rates are three to ten times higher amongst homeless men and six to ten times higher amongst homeless women uh, in comparison to the rest of the population. Yeah, I mean, rough sleeping in particular is devastating uh, to people's health. I mean, you, you can only you can only imagine it. I mean, the the lifestyle that's out there, the fact that everything from every aspect of your life is um, impacted. Why, if you're if you're uh, rough sleeping or in homeless accommodation, you don't have even the normal uh, supports of families. You don't have proper nutrition. Um, possibly you, to get out of the cold, you, you're you're mm. you're engaging in activity that uh, it might in, increase your likelihood to 
uh, engage in alcohol or or even drugs um particularly if you're in the the most the most extreme form of homelessness which is rough sleeping uh, and they looked at 201 deaths uh, over five years, people who were sleeping on the streets, and alcohol and drugs uh, were involved in six out of ten of the deaths. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, mm. that's not surprising. Mm. Uh, and it's some sort of dependency uh, or uh, mental health problem that quite often leads to people being on the streets, isn't it? Well, uh, yes, that can, that can certainly be a contributing factor. I mean, the one thing we, we would always say is there's far more people with uh, an alcohol or drug addiction or with a mental health issue uh, that are not in homelessness than are. So sometimes it's the straw that breaks the camel's back. But ultimately, homelessness is, a, is an absence of a home. Um, and we see that in that, the work of Focus Ireland and the Bill of Trust in Dublin, where we do the Housing First initiative. And that's an initiative where we take people who've been on long term, 15, 16 years on the street, really entrenched in rough sleeping, maybe with uh, mental health and addiction issues. And we put them straight into a home and provide the wraparound supports uh, that they need. And they can maintain that home with a very high success rate. So, yes, those things absolutely can contribute to it. The other thing to say is sometimes it's a chicken and egg mm-hmm. that there may be, you know, a... a um, that people, when they're experiencing homelessness, end up um, becoming uh, falling into addiction as a, as a cult, sort of self-medicating, if you like, particularly if you're talking about rough sleeping and, mm. and maybe the more... Well, more uh, you can imagine how people feel. It's, uh, it must be uh, a state of uh, despondency, and if that can give you some lift, uh, I suppose it's understandable, and uh, I think most of us could uh, identify with that. I uh, have to leave it there for the moment, though, Wayne. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Thanks program. very much. Thank you very much indeed. Wayne Stanley is policy analyst with Focus Ireland and brings our programme to us conclusion today. Our time has run out and is once again. Remember, there'll be a podcast of today's programme available on our website, lmfm.ie, this afternoon. Thanks to Marie Kearns for producing, Maggie McGuire for researching, and Chris Murray in the control tower. I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am, right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie.